this week, just as we are finishing up First John, the book study of, uh, uh, we're going to be in chapter 5, starting in verse 13 today. If you have your Bibles and you want to go start, uh, go ahead and turn there. We, have, uh, we titled this, The Lord of Light and Love. And those are two of the themes that you see throughout First uh, John. And really, the, the First John focuses on uh, Jesus, the transformation that Jesus brings into a life. John wrote this letter to the church. He wrote it to believers, and that's real key. Uh, you, you remember that for part of what one of the passages we'll deal with today that's a little bit more difficult to deal with. But he gives us his thesis, the reason he wrote the letter in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Now, a little back up. Just this week, I was visiting with a guy about eternal things and talking to him about heaven, and he said, well, he said, I guess no, none of us will really know for sure where we're going until we get there. He said that just this week, and I said, well, I just happened to be preaching this Sunday on a verse that addresses that very issue. And in fact, uh, I was reading it just a little bit ago, and it's 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that tells us that we can know that we have eternal life. This is an assurance for believers. And in fact, the reason that John wrote 1 John, the entire letter, his purpose was so that those Christians, even when they doubted and they dealt with struggles and they dealt with questions in their head, he gave us some things that would help us know that we knew uh, that, that we were his children. Now, we've dealt with a whole lot of those, and I'm not going to recap at this point all of 1 John. And you can say, thank you, amen. Uh, we'd be here all day. But what I am going to do is we come to the ending of 1 John here. What I see in this text is some characteristics of God's kids. And that's how I've structured this message with six characteristics of God's kids. Now, a couple of passages here have, have a couple of verses in particular, have some difficult things to interpret. Now, we'll walk through those when we get there, but I want to just delve into just this simple passage that, that brings a conclusion to, to this letter, 1 John. He said, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. Well, there it is. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him. And to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. And I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, but there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. It's one of the confusing passages we'll come back to in a little bit. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one. This is in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Six characteristics of God's kids. Now, I don't think this would be a complete list. There's all kinds of other characteristics that we see even in the book of John that he gives us encouragement. We can know we're of God because of this or because of this. But the first characteristic of God's kids that he gives us here as he comes to the conclusion is this. We have eternal life 
and we know that we know that we know that we have eternal life. We can know it and we can have it settled in our heart. We don't have to wait until we get there to find out if we're going to be accepted in. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to be concerned about whether we've done enough good deeds to outweigh our bad deeds. You know, when I was a kid growing up, that was one of my struggles. In fact, uh, my theology, I've shared with, with the church for years, my, my theology as a, as a kid was a little messed up. I, my, I went to church when I was little. My mom drove us to Hyde Park Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. And then we had a period of time when dad had bought a fishing boat that I didn't go to church much. We were busy. We were on the lake. And uh, he was a bricklayer, so he worked Monday through Friday. We'd go fishing on the weekends or go hunting. And uh, then I, I honestly think that as I was getting into junior high, mom got really concerned about me. She was afraid of the path that I was going to head down. And so mom started taking me and my brother back to a little church there in Cedar Park, Texas. And it didn't take long before I started getting worried about the condition of my soul. But my concern was I, had, I, I thought that if I could just go to church enough Sundays— then God would have to accept me when I died. And the problem was there was a lot of Sundays in there between the time I was about five and 12 years old where we were fishing. So I had a lot of makeup time that I had to deal with. And I was a little worried about being able to make up all those Sundays. I needed more Sundays to outweigh those, those days that I had missed. And so you know, basically it's, it's a works-based idea. Some people think that if I, if I give enough, it'll get me into heaven. Some think that if I, if I do enough good deeds, if I'm a good enough husband, I don't know how many people I've asked, you know, if, if God were to, you were to stand before God and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? And their response would be something like this. Well, it's because I've tried to be a good person or I've tried to, I've tried to be a good father. Or I've tried to be a good husband. Well, all of that is works-based. It's basically saying, I'm, I'm going to try really hard to measure up and get there. When I came to the understanding really of what we talked about last week, that there's nothing I could do, but it's Jesus. It, it, it is the son of God who came and he, he was born in a manger. He walked among us and he died on a cross so that I could have forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. That is our one and only hope. John said it over and over again. There's no other way except Jesus. He is our only hope of eternal life. And so it's not complicated, and that's where this helps. I don't have to have enough good deeds to measure up. I don't have to keep a tally. I don't have to understand the theology. You and I can disagree on, on issues of theology. We can disagree on issues of, of, of even uh, salvation. We can disagree on some, some, a lot of issues. But if we agree on this, that Jesus, the, the Son of God, died on a cross and rose again, and I'm putting my faith and trust in him and him alone for my eternal life, that's all that's necessary. Jesus told the disciples the night before he died, he said, look, I'm, I'm going, and I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and I'm going to return again and receive you unto myself, that there you may be also. Thomas was confused. He's like, we don't know where you're going. How are we going to know how to get there? But Jesus' response was, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's Jesus. Jesus. It's not easy, but it's simple. And so th th that's why as a, as a believer, if you put your faith and trust in Christ for your eternal life, it is settled. You can't get there and you can't mess it up after that. You, once you become a child of God and you are born again into his kingdom. Now, a lot of people are scared of this theology that, that you know, the, the old 
the, the phrase that was thrown around was once saved, always saved. That's a, that's a scary thing because then the idea then is, well, you know, then that means I just have to walk an aisle and get baptized. I go do whatever I want. I can sin all I want and God's still going to accept me. Well, that's not completely the truth because just walking an aisle and getting baptized or showing some, some form of godliness is just more religion. It's not about walking an aisle and getting baptized. It's about allowing Christ to, to change you from the inside out. When you repent of your sin and give your life to Christ, every single one of us from that point on, every believer in here has sinned after they were saved. Every one of us. None of you have been perfect since the day that you confess Christ as your Savior. And yet, it's not dependent upon whether you were good enough. It was never dependent upon whether you were good enough in the first place. It will never be dependent upon whether you're good enough in the future. Your salvation, your hope of eternal life is 100% completely, completely dependent upon whether Christ is holding on to you as his child. When you put your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone, you become a child of God. Jesus told Nicodemus at the very beginning of his ministry, he described it this way, you're born again. You're born into a new kingdom. You were born of your mother to start with. You were born in the flesh. And if you become one my child, you are now born in the spirit. Once that happens, it cannot be taken away. And that's why we have assurance. I don't have to worry about whether I'm the right religion. I just need to know Jesus. He's the one who's taking care of my eternity. And so as a Christian, we can have assurance of our salvation. Now that assurance does not lead to an arrogance. If you're truly a born again believer in Christ, you realize that you couldn't do it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead to this world. You were completely tied up in, in your sin and you were redeemed by Christ and Christ alone. So if I couldn't save myself, Ephesians chapter two, verse eight and nine says, I don't have anything to brag about. So Christians should never have an arrogance that they're saved, that they have eternal life. They should just have a confidence. It settled because Christ settled it, not because of what I did, but because of what he did. And so the first characteristic of a Christian that John lists here is we're, we're saved, we have eternal life, and we know it. We can have a confidence in it because it's not based on how good we are, it's based on Jesus. Second characteristic, God hears our prayer. Now, yesterday, I had been studying this text, and I was on my four-wheeler headed out to a, a bow blind where there was a deer that I was hoping to, to uh, harvest. Beautiful big buck, and so I prayed. And I, I kept telling the Lord, now you told me that you hear my prayer. Not only did that deer sh not show up, nothing showed up, not even a bird. Nothing showed up. So I went back to that verse and I said, wait a minute, Lord. And I went, oh gosh, that verse says, if we ask anything according to his will, guess it wasn't his will. That's pretty obvious it wasn't his will or he'd have brought it to pass. The second characteristic of a child of God is God loves us and wants us to walk in a relationship with him and communicate with him through prayer. This is the confidence that we have before him. See, because Christ has cleansed us of our sins, we can come into the presence of a holy God and we can communicate with a holy God. We are not holy in, an, in ourselves. Our flesh never will be. It, it never would be, it never will be good enough to stand in the presence of holy God. But because we put our faith and trust in Christ, we've been washed by his blood, we can have confidence then to pray and know that he hears our prayer. 
What an incredible blessing for us that God hears our prayer. If we know that we, he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. We can come in confidence in prayer. There's, there's one prayer that I guarantee you absolutely is according to God's will, and that is a prayer of repentance. When you pray to turn from your sin, God hears that prayer and forgives you every single time. Now, let me create, ease up some confusion here, because if this verse does create some confusion sometimes. Well, what about this prayer? What about this prayer? What about this prayer? It might be easier to say this. There, there are at least four prayers that God does not hear, okay? And we see these outlined in various places in Scripture. The first one is right here. When we ask something that's not in line with God's will, he's not going to give us a positive response. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't hear it. He's a sovereign God. He hears the words, but he's not going to give us our request when we pray something that's not according to his will. When we pray and we ask something according to our own selfish desires. James chapter 4, verse 3 says that very thing that, that you, a lot of times when you pray, you don't receive what you ask for because you're praying according to your selfish desires. You're making it all about you. Okay, Lord, I get it. Yesterday. <laughs> Sometimes he doesn't hear our prayer because we choose to hold on to sin. Let me put it this way. If, if you're living in a uh, sinful lifestyle that you know is outside of the will of God, maybe uh, you've moved in with your girlfriend and you're living in that, that relationship outside the will of God and you're asking God to bless that union, I don't believe God's going to answer that prayer. He's not going to bless that union that is clearly something that's outside of his word. So when you pray for God to do something that's outside of, of, of his word, when you pray for God to move and you're clearly living disobediently in sin, God's not going to hear that prayer. Isaiah tells us that in Isaiah 1.15. And then fourth, and we don't ask in faith. Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, when you pray, pray in faith. When you don't pray a believing prayer, believing that God will answer that prayer, then God has no obligation to answer your prayer. If you're just throwing it out there and you really don't believe it. So those are some, some prayers that God is not obligated to according to his word and will not answer in a positive way. And yet he still encourages us to come to him with earnest, open hearts and lift up our prayers before him. So God hears the prayer of his his children. It's, it's not wholly unlike a dad and their kids. You listen to what your kids say. You hear their prayer, and there's some things that you can't give them, no matter how much they beg or how much they ask, because you know that it's not good for them. It's not according to, to your will. It's not according to the plan. Third, characteristic of God's children and this is a, the, the second one that was, I told you there are going to be two things that were tough passages to, to work through. We can face, God's children can face severe discipline from the Father. Let me read that text, and we're going to look at a couple of things here, because this, this one is a, it's tough and it's a little bit scary. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask that God will give life to him. Okay, so if you see a fellow believer that's sick, well, he's committed a sin. Okay, let's back up. You see a fellow believer that's sinning against God. You should pray for that fellow believer. As long as it's a sin that God is not already determined to cut him off for. But wait a minute. Read the rest of this text. 
And God will give life to him to those who commit sin that does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there, but there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. What the heck's he talking about here, John? I love the way Dr. Allen uh, addressed this issue to start with. He said, you've got an issue here that it's kind of like if you've lost the combination to your safe. It doesn't matter how much good stuff's in that safe. If you've lost the combination, you ain't going to be able to get to it, right? John and his readers apparently knew something that we don't know. John was dealing with and John was referring to here. It's like uh, we don't have that combination. So we have to look at this text and try to understand it in light of all of the New Testament and in light of all the Scripture. So there's four primary views to this text that I want to I walk through. The first one is some believe that this is referring to a heinous sin that someone could commit and God could not save them because of that sin. Maybe a, a, the most heinous sin that we might think of is murder or or. Uh, I think that's probably the worst, taking the life of someone else that God's given life. The only problem with that theory is God's forgiven murderers. Paul is exhibit number one. David might be exhibit number two. So, I, and you have to remember here that John's writing to believers. So is there a sin that leads to eternal or spiritual death for the believer? We've already said that a believer can have confidence that he's saved. So, no. If John's writing to believers, a believer can't commit a, a sin bad enough then that would cause him to die an eternal death. The second uh, thought here is apostasy, and this is very similar. This, the, the problem is apostasy, Scripture teaches us, is a sin that can only be committed by unbelievers. Only unbelievers can, can commit the sin of apostasy, not believers. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is probably the second most popular view of this text is that somehow John's referring to someone who has committed the unpardonable sin. Uh, he has committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You know, I've had folks periodically come to me as a pastor and say, Pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that I've committed the unpardonable sin. Well, the first thing I can tell them is, well, I, I can tell you right now, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin because the Holy Spirit's still dealing with you. The unpardonable sin is rejection of the Holy Spirit. And so a believer cannot commit that unpardonable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. A true believer could never do that because you've already put your faith and trust in the Holy Spirit. So it leaves one other uh, option that I believe this is the, and this is what most scholars believe this text is saying, is that believers can get so far away from God and commit such sin that God takes them out of this world. And so he's, because he's writing to believers here, he's not, he can't be talking about spiritual death, eternal death. He's talking about physical death. And I'll be honest as a pastor, I believe I've seen this. I believe I've seen someone who once confessed Christ, but their life was being lived out in such a way that it was dragging the name of Christ through the mud, and their heavenly Father said, enough. And he took them home. I see some heads shaking out here of another longtime minister. I believe that that's what Paul's teaching here. It's a warning to believers that, yes, there is, there comes a time when God says, that's enough. I'm not going to let you live like that in this world anymore. I'm bringing you home. 
And, and God, so what he's telling believers, if, if God has already determined that he's taken them out, there's no need for you to be praying for them to be healed. If God is, is, is pulling the props out from under somebody, you don't need to be trying to prop them back up. And I think that that's a, a, a truth that goes beyond this particular issue. But if God has chosen that that person is living in such sin that, that they have cut him off and they're dragging the name of Christ to the mud, John says there is a sin that leads to death and God will take them whole. So I, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause there for just a second because there's other passages in the New Testament that speak to us about God's discipline. In, in fact, Hebrews uh, chapter 12 encourages us to embrace God's discipline. When God disciplines us, it's for our good and for his kingdom good. I know that that's, that's hard to swallow, but I want you to think of it this way. Eternity. One soul that gains or loses eternal life is worth more than a hundred years on this earth. If, if, if my sin became so egregious that people were turned away from Christ for eternity, then what is it really for God to shorten my life by 20 years? Because he's God and he sees a picture that you and I don't. You see where I'm coming from? Our God who loves us disciplines us because he knows what's better. We have a hard time seeing past this world. I don't know how often our prayer meetings do, it, it kind of dissolve into praying for someone to not go to heaven. How many times have you prayed for, for a 90-year-old aunt or uncle or grandparent? You prayed and prayed and prayed that God would heal them. You know that if they die, they're going to go to heaven. You're praying to keep them here. When, when what we ought to be praying most for is our cousin or our nephew who doesn't know Jesus, and if they were to die today, they'd spend eternity separated from God. The, the discipline and the punishment that God may pour out upon us or the discipline, and it would always be discipline from our Heavenly Father for believers because his, his goal is always to purify us and to, and to redirect us so that we would turn back to him. That discipline that we'd receive from the Father can't even compare to the glory of eternity. And if my sin caused one person to, to fail to gain eternal life, God, take me out. Don't allow me to do that. God disciplines his children, and there comes a point sometimes where God may have to discipline us harshly, is what John's saying. This isn't fun on a Christmas weekend before Christmas. And here's where we are in 1 John. I like the first point better, <laughs> okay? We can know that we know that we have eternal life through Christ. But we can also know that our Father loves us so much that he's not going to let us continue in sin without disciplining us. And there may come a point where he has to discipline us harshly. Fourth, this is the next thing that goes right along with that. Believers will not be able to continue in sin unchecked. It, 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 this is once again in First John. This becomes a difficult passage sometimes because we're not reading it in Greek. 
uh, in our English language, it says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Wait a minute, Pastor, you just said that there's a, every single one of us who has been a believer in Christ. We, we have sinned after we accepted Christ as Savior. The Greek language here uses the present tense term that means to continue in a lifestyle of sin, okay? And so what John is saying is those who truly are believers in Christ Jesus cannot continue in a lifestyle of sin unchecked. And that's why if somebody comes to me and says, the Lord's convicted me, I might have committed the impardonable sin. No, you haven't. Because if the Lord's convicted you, then he's at work in your life and you, there's no way you've committed an unpardonable sin. But a believer will not continue in sin unchecked, walking in sin away from the Lord. Fifth, we are protected from the evil one. We know that we are of God. The whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the, the but, but we are protected. Back up to the last half of verse 18, I'm sorry. Uh, the one who is born of God, God keeps him. And the evil one does not touch him. And we know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. That does not mean that Satan is in charge of this world, okay? We, we see that God's, God is sovereign over this entire world. God is sovereign over the works of the enemy. We do know that, the enemy has a lot of influence on this planet, in this world. And we see it in scripture. We see him referred to as the God of this world in, in Ephesians chapter six. Satan is, you see it in, in Job when, when the, the enemy, Satan or whatever um, the, the enemy of God was at that point, he comes to God and he says, hey, I see you. Well, God asked him, do you see my servant Job? He says, yeah, and God says, hey, you know, he's, he's a pretty good model of how someone ought to live. And Satan says, well, of course he is. You only let good things happen to him. And, and you see that flesh itself out in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. But what I want you to understand there is even when the enemy is allowed to, do a, uh, to, to deal with Job and to, to harm Job's family and then eventually to physically harm Job, it's always done under the authority of God. God holds the reins to the evil one always god satan will not be able to do anything to you in this world nothing can happen to you in this world that's outside of god's purposes and plans for you and i don't fully understand all that but the point is he protects us from the evil one the evil one will never have reign over your life when you're a child of god you have protection from god it's a beautiful picture of a loving father that he's going to watch over his kids and not allow the evil one to have, have any reign over us outside of his authority. And then finally, and this is probably the most beautiful part of this text, uh, so don't go to sleep on me. We are in Christ. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one, and we are in the true one. That is, in his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Our life is tied up in Christ if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Paul puts it this way. He said, just as, as Christ died and rose again and is, 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 will forever be in the presence of his Father, so also will every person who's put their faith in Jesus. Your life is completely wrapped up in Christ. So when you die, just as Christ died and rose again, you will also be resurrected, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
Jesus put it this way. He said, abide in me and I in you. And the vine cannot, cannot produce fruit of itself unless, or the branch cannot produce fruit unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. The illustration that Jesus gave us of the vine and the branch is you take a branch and you graft it to a vine and, and the branch becomes a part of the vine and the vine becomes a part of the branch. They become indwelled, connected together where you cannot separate them. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus are in Christ. Our life, our future, our eternity, our hope is all wrapped up in that of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who was their creation, who was a part of the life-giving breath that was breathed into this world, into every human being to begin with. We are in Christ. To paint that picture would be impossible. Your life on this earth your eternity, your future, your hope, my life is fully and completely dependent upon Christ. It's completely wrapped up. It's tied together. When we put our trust and our hope in Christ, we become so entwined with him that everything from here on out for us is dependent upon him, even to the point of death and your future beyond that. Why does that matter so much? Because Jesus, as we've already been talking about, is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He took on human flesh. He stepped on this earth. He walked among us. He died on a cross that we might have salvation, and he rose again, that we'd have eternal life. Then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. When you take your last breath on this earth, your, your future, your hope, your eternity is 100% tied up in Christ. If he rose again, so will you. If he's alive, so will you be. If he's rejoicing, so will you. That's the beauty of Jesus. Jesus came to this world to be our light and our life. He is our life. I think back to John's prologue of his gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word was the light of men. That light brought life. In Jesus, we have everything that we need to, to, to know the truth, but also to, to live the truth. The light comes that we might see what's right and wrong, what's real, what's, what's false, what's true and what's not true. The life comes to empower us to live that life. We are completely 100% wrapped up in Christ. Christ is the real thing. There's no other hope of eternal life outside of Christ. There's no other religion. There is no religion. because I would, I would argue that Christianity is not about a religion. Christianity is about a relationship with a living God who died for you and rose again. I keep saying that over and over, but that's the crux of it. Jesus came. We're celebrating Christmas. We talked about last week, why did Jesus come? He came to be the Savior. Jesus came so that he could die. Jesus entered the, 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 the manger in that hollowed out cave so that he could be buried in a cave not far from there a few years later and be resurrected from the dead. Jesus came with that very purpose that, that he might die and, be, and, and rise again so that you and I could have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. There's no other truth out there like it. There's no other religion like it. There's no other hope 
There's no other God guy that claimed to be God and then rose up out of the grave on his own power and his own strength. There's none other like Jesus. I, I drive that point home because I believe that one of the most confusing things about how John ended this text, about how he ended his letter, was that next verse. So John ends his entire letter with this. Little children, guard your hearts from idols. What? You've had this great letter. You don't say your goodbyes. You don't, you don't you know, talk about all the guys that are hanging out with you like Paul does. John ends it with this command. Guard your hearts from idols. You know what idols are? They're imposters. Idols are not the real thing. Idols are substitutes for a true and living God. People carve out idols. They'll make a monkey to represent some God that they're going to worship. They'll carve out an elephant to represent some God. They'll carve out a cross as a representation of the God who they want to worship, and that becomes a part of their religion. It's not about a religion. Every one of those is a cheap substitute for the real thing. Every idol is a cheap substitute for the one and only living God who died and rose again, whose name is Jesus. So accept no substitutes. There's no hope outside of Christ. There's no eternal life outside of Christ, none. There's no religion, there's no idol, there's no rock you can worship, there's no theology or philosophy that can save your soul and give you hope in a future outside of Christ. So accept no substitutes. Guard your heart from idols. If you're already a believer, Satan can't touch your soul but he can try to distract you. And, and a, lot, a lot of times what he does is he distracts you with idols. Now I want to go for just a moment from preaching to meddling. I'm going to meddle with me first. There's things in my life that I allow to become idols that aren't God's best. And there comes a point where if we're going to walk in God's best, we've got to lay down those idols. Sometimes our idols are a spouse, a child. Sometimes our idols are a job. Sometimes our idols could be a house, a boat, a hobby. Sometimes our idols could be a sports team. They could be a figure, a, a, a Hollywood star. They could be movies, they could be entertainment. We allow a lot of things to become substitutes for God in our life, to become idols to our hearts. And when we do, we miss God's very best. And so scripture tells us, guard your hearts from idols. Don't accept any substitutes. Let Jesus reign, let him rule. Don't give any room for all that other garbage in your life to take precedence over Christ. Religion can become an idol. Sometimes our pet theologies can become our idols. Sometimes beloved preachers can become idols. Guard your hearts, guard yourselves from idols. 
because Jesus is the only one worthy of worship in our lives. I'm going to ask Corey and the team to come. We're going to have a hymn of response. If you would say, Pastor, I've, I've never put my faith in Christ, and I need to do that now. I've, I've been chasing after all kinds of other stuff. And maybe just simply John's profession of faith through baptism was enough for you to say, man, I need to follow Christ in baptism. Maybe, maybe you've been thinking about it. You've been mulling it over. You've been putting it off. And you simply would say today, look, I, I, I want to follow Christ. I want to give him my life. I, I want to follow him. I, I, I'm going to be up here. I'd love to talk to you about it. Nathan would love to talk to you about it. Come. Don't, don't, don't let this day pass you off. The Holy Spirit is drawing you to himself. Don't let this day go. But church, if you're already a believer, but you'd say, Pastor, I've, I've let this take precedence over God. This has become an idol in my life, and I need to lay it down. I don't even honestly want to know what it is. I don't want to talk to you about it. You, you don't need me. I'm not your priest. You need to come to the altar and just simply lay it down and say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm, I'm, I want to make. I want to put you first. I want to put you back in the driver's seat. Here's my idol. I don't want to follow it anymore. Jesus is worth it. Jesus will fill your life with everything you need. You can set those idols aside. All of those things can be fun and a part of this life that the Lord's blessed us with. But when they become that driving force in our life that 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 pushes us away from Christ, they become idols. So guard your hearts from idols. Let's stand together as Corey and the team lead us. And if God's calling you forward, you come. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.